Hi everyone, my name is Kurt Bachman and welcome back to The Ultimate Dish. Today I'm thrilled to introduce our guest, Wanda Grobelar, a chef and an expert in soft skills, leadership, quality assurance, and management training. Wanda is also a PhD candidate researching how to navigate stress in the kitchen. As the head of quality assurance at the Culinary Arts Center of Azerbaijan in Baku, Wanda brings a wealth of experience in creating lean cultures, a topic we'll be delving into today. Currently pursuing a Doctor of Business Administration, Wanda's research focuses on the intersection of workplace psychology and robotics. In addition to this, Wanda has authored several articles and studies covering topics such as creating quality cultures in higher education, guiding culinarians in burnout prevention, and exploring Industry 4.0 for future jobs in the culinary sector. Her unwavering commitment to driving positive change and helping chefs navigate kitchen dynamics while maintaining their well-being is truly inspiring. Join us today as we explore the realms of leadership, technology, and the future of workplace psychology with the remarkable Wanda Grobelar. And there she is. Good evening. I have to say good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for this opportunity afforded me. It's really, I'm really grateful for this, to share my experience with more people, especially more chefs around the world. So thank you. Beautiful. Absolutely beautifully said. And I hinted a little bit at the intro. You're you're several hours ahead of me here in Boulder, Colorado, <laughs> where it's 9.15 a.m. And Noel, our producer, at, who's in San Diego, so I'm super, super appreciative of your late into the evening time that you're dedicating to us. And to kick things off right off the bat, out of curiosity, because this is really all about you, what brought you to Baku? Absolutely beautiful part of the world, right? I think I read some somewhere once that the entire country is below sea level. I don't know how that works, but what brought you to that part of the world? Um. It's a long and a short story, but many, many years ago, I was living in South Africa. I was born in South Africa, and I always had a passion to leave South Africa because I'm curious. I need to know what's happened in the world, and I enjoyed dealing with different cultures, different people, and I wanted to know more. And at that stage, I was not really qualified um, in something, and I thought that I, my passion was also to be a chef, so I thought if I maybe pursue this career... I know that that will take me out of the country. It will create more opportunities. And the way how I exit was actually, I entered the FHA Cup in Singapore and at a wedding cake answered the dessert table. And I made Singapore Airlines flew almost 200 kg of my equipment to Singapore. And um, I entered a competition. I managed to win a bronze medal in the competition. Oh, wow. Um, which opened doors for me from there. It started to open doors. So it was really to get a passport to leave South Africa. Um, because I was not very young at this stage. I was not like in my 20s. So I needed to find a way to leave. And that was my passport out of the country. And a good plan. And, then, <laughs> <laughs> and from there, I was living in um, the UAE for almost 10 years where I started my academic career, I was always interested. I have a few passions in life. Definitely chef is one of my passions, but I'm also interested in academics, research, to improve life for people. And I'm always curious. I want to know more what's happening. And I managed to find a pathway where I could have combined everything together. And I used it as type versus MBA, and then I started my PhD. And about two years ago, last year sometime, we came to Baku on holiday. And I fell in love with the country because it was different than the UAE for a change in many um, options. I will explain now to when we talk about the culinary scene in this country. And also, like you said, it's a very beautiful city. It reminds you of Europe. My heart is always for Europe because my background is Dutch. And it reminded me of Europe. And that was, I got an opportunity from a university as a lecturer, eventually quality assurance. And I decided to come to this country and explore because, uh, like I said, I'm always curious, want to learn about different cultures. And here I am. At the moment, here I am in Baku. So. No, I love it. You've said the word curious several times. And it's ironic or, or even serendipitous that 
for us as an educational institution of higher education, it's sort of been a theme this year to stay curious, or a cliche, if you will, because so much is changing around us. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Even the simplest notion of how do we celebrate AI and leverage it in a very positive way, there are always going to be some that immediately panic, right? You know, students are going to submit work that that has been helped by technology. But if we do it in the right way and we stay curious, the results can be very beneficial and positive for everyone. So before we dive into that, and I'd love to talk a little bit about your journey from pastry chef to academics, but can you talk a little bit about the culinary scene in Baku, where you are now? Okay, so for culinary scene, I'm working currently for Amkasav, Azerbaijan, as you know. And I first joined the university for the one-year contract. Yeah, I didn't know about Kasa because Baku was very unfair. Azerbaijan, I didn't know about. As even today, if you speak to people, you tell them you live in Azerbaijan. They think it's part of Turkey. They ask you, where is it? They don't know where it's Azerbaijan. And so I didn't know there was a culinary school there. I know about individual people, but I didn't know about the school. And when I joined the school, he was telling me the story that when he joined many years ago in this country, which I similarly experienced, he realized that although there's very good cuisine in this country, interesting cuisine, there's a lack in professional skills in this country. Because remember, in this country, the young people get training from their mothers, their grandmothers, it's tradition coming through villages. There was not really the professional skills, you know, there was not a school to help them with this. And that was his vision, and he started this culinary school. What's very interesting about this country is we have more than 4,200 villages. And very recently, I was talking to a government official, because sometimes I also help the government with quality assurance in higher education. And he was telling me that he's collecting at the moment, you know, all the traditional recipes from families in these villages. And one particular recipe mentioned to me, but was really interesting, that is a recipe where they cook food, a type of meat, but they use a nail, a rusted nail. They throw that into the food to improve the color of the food. This is the tradition of this religion. <laughs> so if you think about iron oxidites and what's happening in your body, but this is the tradition. So it's actually fascinating to understand all the traditions and it is completely different. And um, like my husband, he loves milk, fresh milk. We come from countries where fresh milk was freely available. It's much more difficult to get it here. You cannot really go just to the supermarket and buy a bottle of milk. Everything is processed. Salted butter, a problem. Um, coming from Dubai, where you have all everything all year round, because we get from all around the world, now we're bound to seasons, which is a good thing in the one side sure, because sure. you learn to be creative. But if you're spoiled and you can get everything <laughs> anytime, it makes a difference. And then I think also the students here learns different. Remember, they're still the old school and they're up and coming now in this country. We're talking about the ex-Soviet country and everything associated with that. So it's up and coming. They're very set in their ways. They're not so curious. And I think people like Mr. Calvin Kong opening the school is helping the Azerbaijani students together with everyone to, you know, to improve this area. But it's fascinating, the culture, if you think all these recipes, but this is basically the scene in Azerbaijan. I think maybe I'll try the rusty nail. I don't know that I will <laughs> consume it, but I'd love to see if it imparts some yes. color into the final sauce. Fascinating. <laughs> You know, we're going to talk a lot about some of the work that you do, but a big part of our audience, Wanda, is our students. And you touched on it just a little bit, but I'd love for you to set the stage a little bit more. Take us all the way back to growing up in South Africa. And then, of course, you graduated from culinary school and became a pastry chef. And again, you talked a little bit about what enticed you, but was cooking a big part of your family growing up? Was there a tradition in your family's kitchen? And then the question I always like to ask is, how is that tradition, if there was traditions, how does that stay with you and influence the cuisine that you create or have created today? Okay, thank you for the question. 
And my mom told me when I was eight years old, I insisted I want the chef's hat and the cookbook. <laughs> See, there you and go. Actually, there you go. <laughs> actually, today, here's the cookbook. It's more than 47 years old. Oh my goodness! I'm still. Yeah. It's it's wrapped in plastic because it's it's sort of falling apart. Falling apart. Yeah. Um, is that I'm you? Still... Is that you on the cover? No, no. no, this no. Is the, yeah. <laughs> but it's still with me, and it travels everywhere with me. And this Isn't is what I have something? from my. <laughs> so wow. that's where I started, and I was also into business because, like I said, I'm curious. I have a lot of interest, and so for. Very long time I didn't follow it. it. Might be also because due to finances I couldn't afford to go to a proper calendar school, and um, I didn't really study. I started almost to work immediately, and in that time you you could work immediately. And um, later in my life I decided that I want to follow the calendar career, and I enrolled myself into evening classes. I had a very good. I was working a very long time for the company, and they were very tolerant with me, and they allowed me to go to evening classes, but Fridays I was working as an intern in a hotel. So they allowed me not to come to work on a Friday so that I could complete my internship for my chef course. And so then they knew that I would leave because, you know, my passion wasn't that. Like I told you, I left the country and then I changed more into academics. But it really started when I was eight years old. And for traditional food, South Africa is not as colorful as, for example, um, and spices as Indian food. I learned to love Indian food in Dubai, especially Middle Eastern food. Um, and I really miss sometimes spices because there's also a lack of nice spices in this country. But it's not as colorful. And we like sugar, a lot of sugar with a lot of food. Sugar with meat, we do a baruti, and maybe you're familiar with that, which is like a custard-based sweet meat. Also, it's not so creative then many other cultures I've learned with all my travels through the world. But as a tradition, my grandmother had a German background. My father, obviously the rest of the family was Dutch. So I grew up with the Dutch tradition and the strip waffles, everything like that. And then my grandmother was always making the kartoffelen, a potato <laughs> dish, so that yeah. was a favorite dish. But for, that was the background. And I think I really developed my culinary background or my love for the spices when I moved overseas. When I moved abroad, it changed everything. If you remember, South Africa is very on the bottom of the, the world. So, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. once you go to the Middle East, obviously you, you start to learn about all the different cultures and the different food. And that really opened up for me, you know, the different cultures. Yeah. And because yeah. it's obviously, yes. And strokes your, your curiosity. I love that. So then moving forward then, it's quite clear why you had this desire to become a chef. And my next question is kind of twofold. It's a little tougher. To understand quality management and, and control, quality assurance, I think people probably have a general idea of what that means. But I guess two parts. What does that mean to you in your field of work and what's involved in an MBA, you know, one of the highest levels of academic achievement in quality management, quality insurance. What I think listeners are going to be fascinated about another career path once, once you tell us exactly what it is. <laughs> so for any students listening today, there's many ways that you can pursue your passion for culinary. You don't have to be cooking in a kitchen all the time. One of this is the, like you mentioned, the total quality management. Total quality management, to sum it up in one word very quickly, is continuous improvement. Continuous improvement in kitchens, in the way we teach, in the way we do everything around hospitality industry, especially the culinary industry. And it means uh, checking the whole time and basically improving the whole time. So when I decided on my topic as for my MBA, I specifically looked at HAZAP, the, the food safety part, and I was investigating all the bakeries in the UAE and find out, you know, what is the criteria, how they look at quality, are they following it, which is different in this country, for example. UAE is mandatory and here in this country is up and coming. But that was really my passion. And I find a combination between my passion 
and also quality because quality is also important for me. I believe that if we don't have quality in anything that we do, it's almost not value in it because even if it's something small we do, we should always do it with the highest quality. If it's teaching, if you're producing an item, if you're observing food safety, but the quality is really important in every step all the way. So this is a different year, but same because currently this is part of my job, daily job, is quality assurance, continuous improvement in many ways. As I listen to your story and I think about how you've pursued this career in measuring and continuous improvement, I'd love for you to speak just a little bit about, it's obvious that it's important to you, but how does this, I mean, you have a job, right? And then you come home. Does this continuous improvement (laughs) impact your home life as well? Are you driving your husband crazy because you're looking for more continuous improvement (laughs) in the home as well? But in a serious way, how does it impact you in areas outside of work? I think not so much at home because I think it's maybe the hours, not the working hours as I'm currently doing my, my the doctoral degree. So I don't really have time to continue inside my home environment. <laughs> However, I think when you can definitely see it is when I choose, when I go outside to eat outside, I'm very particular where I eat. I will not eat at a place if I don't think the food safety is there. If they don't follow the food safety, the everything about food, I'm very particular on that. And I think that is because my knowledge about food safety, creating safe foods, the environment, it's really standing out for me. Maybe for other people, when I go with a group and friends, they will not even notice it. But I will pick up the wrong board in the kitchen, the chopping board, the glass cleaner I use for food, and I will not eat out. So I'm a very difficult eater in that sense. I don't eat everywhere. I will not eat street food unless I'm really sure that they follow food safety rules. That's fair and that's honest, right? I don't know that you're the only person that that feels. We have so much knowledge at our fingertips, right? We can we can use technology to read reviews, not only on restaurants but hotels and other exactly. businesses. You really have to manage quality so that the perception to the consumer is going to buy your product is excellent. Yes. It's just the world yes. we live in, right? Yeah. Yes. Now, I agree on that. And also, I think it becomes a part of your life. You cannot separate it. Even if I tell you, I don't really, I don't walk around in my home and say, can we improve this? Can we improve this? <laughs> but it becomes a part of your life. And sure. if it's not far out, it, it creates stress in your life uh, because it's bothering you. You know, it's not correct. Uh, it's not improving. And um, I think for all of us, uh, because also for any chef in the background, is this is what you follow, especially in some places. So you, it becomes part of your life and you cannot help it. But even when somebody invites you for dinner, I check very carefully how the food is prepared. Well, <laughs> and it's okay to be unapologetic for that, right? It's a very important point. I, I'd have to honestly admit that I have some of those tendencies as well. However... I sometimes overlook those tendencies, right? I Sometimes what I know, I wish I didn't know. <laughs> uh, yes, that's because what I wanted to say. It's like, you, you know, if I come over to a friend's house and I see a roast on the counter, you know, unrefrigerated, and I come back four or five hours later to see if I can help and that roast is still there, I'm probably not going to roast that night. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I've done it before, so I would just say... No, unfortunately, I don't eat it. I would just, you know, I would try to eat something else. Yeah. But it is a problem. I, no. I don't know if it's a curse or a blessing. I'm not sure. But yes, it is a problem. No, no but it's a balance. It's a balance. Well, we'll yes. you, you mentioned the word stress, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But I'm curious. I've always thought, particularly if one of my instructors decides that they would like to pursue additional education, and, and myself included, I, I, I do recall when I was studying for my master's degree in education, I felt like I I felt like a good student, but I also felt like a great employee. I felt like while I was learning, I was a really good instructor. I was a really I was sharing what I was learning with enthusiasm and excitement as I share that with my team or students indirectly. So I'm just curious as the head of quality assurance in your current role and 
studying for your PhD, do you find that there's a nice balance there? Are you an even better manager because you're learning alongside? Yes, I think I can agree on that. I think because part of my um, my job includes sometimes guest lecturer. I do sometimes teaching also at, um, like I said before, in university, I was a full-time lecturer sometimes. I do supervision for students. But as you progress with your own studies, um, actually the thing that I did manage was because I'm doing burnout and stress, the more I'm doing burnout and stress, the more I see myself in this whole thing. I can tell you exactly what stage I am. Yeah. <laughs> so, so except for yeah. when I, and I'm able, I'm able to see other employees or maybe my colleagues when they reach certain stages, I can see when, you know, when stress is getting to them, when it's reached a level that we should stop, which we should do something. So I think it gives you a far better background how to manage people in the sense of I understand people. So if somebody is difficult, I understand that it's not coming from, it's not me. It, it might be that the person is going through a lot of things. Maybe it's the work pressure, the, a lot of things happening in their life. So I definitely, I think it makes me more tolerant to handle people. And always try and understand people, why do you react like this? And when I teach from time to time, I really feel that I can tell stories. I believe when you teach, you should tell stories. Instead of just reading through a presentation, if you tell stories to your students and they understand it's real life, they remember. But if you just read through a presentation, they don't really remember anything. So with this experience and my current studies, I'm really able to tell them stories or examples. So in all cases, it helps with leadership and management. When I stand in front of a class, when I am trying and supervise students from all over the world, because I literally have from all over the world up to master's level, sometimes doctoral degree, it makes a difference, definitely, because you learn as you go. And do you find that including the students, I love the story, Art, I fully 100% agree. So you become an educator. You're also a storyteller. Um, do you find that it's valuable to include the students almost to flip the classroom? In other words, you know, have a student share their experience, whether it's about dropping a rusty nail into a stock or some other tradition. Do you find that helps the overall learning in the classroom? Yes, definitely. I really believe in outcome-based learning and student-centered learning. The student must be part of the class. It's the student's class and you're just there to guide them to gain the knowledge. I'm definitely against where the teacher is doing the only work and just now and then a question. What I need to say in this country, for example, they still follow a very traditional learning method. And the problem is when you teach in Azerbaijan, I don't speak Azerbaijan. I speak a little bit Azerbaijan. I can help myself in the market. I can help myself in a taxi. But when you teach, I always have translator. Some students don't understand English. That is still fine. But if you want to to, to fight with somebody, by the time it's translated, you forgot the story what you're fighting about. So it's not <laughs> But this is the challenge here. But even with this challenge, I really believe that still the stories, I think they can see my passion when I tell it. Yeah. And the translators is normally really good in our, our Kalani Institute. So they, they already know the, you know, the story. And then many of, obviously, of the staff members, they're expats as well. So they speak English. But yes, definitely, it's, uh, the student must be center. Gone are the days where the teacher is important and the student is just listening and you're just reading or you do all the work. The students need to be involved. They fully agree. Fully. This is how they, yes. And thank you for that. Thank you for that. Let's talk a little bit about not just stress management, but prioritizing stress management. I love that. It's a very super important and relevant topic, especially for professionals in our industry, right? But I think it's great. It's a great conversation beyond our industry. You wrote an article called Running on Empty, which I saw on LinkedIn. And it's what I love is that it's that particular article was like really straightforward right? This is how stress works. I never thought about stress. Quite honestly, Wanda, I never thought about stress in stages, right? Okay. So for our listeners, if you could, if it's not stressful to walk us through <laughs> no. the stages, not only the stages of stress at a high level, but how, the, how different factors 
can affect us on an individual level. That's what's really important to me. And and maybe as a, a second part of that question, how does emotional intelligence come to play into the management, uh, into stress management? Okay, thank you for the question. So I will first explain to you the uh, very simple terms, the stress, uh, what is stress, the different levels of stress. And then I would uh, like to explain to you what I normally use to explain emotional intelligence to students for anybody to understand. So if we think about stress, we have good stress and we have harmful stress. We need good stress because think about young culinary students go to competition, they need stress to push them to a higher levels. If you're trying to obtain a degree or you want really to get good marks somewhere or you want to achieve a award at work or you need some stress to push you. Otherwise, we will not move forward. You need that good stress. The problem is when stress becomes harmful. And um, harmful stress could be divided into two different sections. We have the acute stress, which happens when, for example, you're in a, in a car accident. Or maybe something happened at work. You hurt yourself at work. It's a very sudden stress event. It can last, and the effects can last from one or three days to about four weeks, but it's a once-off event, a stressful event. It's not normally happening in your life, and suddenly it's there. People, different stuff happen to people. But then we also have the chronic stress, which could be, it could happen through daily hassles, for example. You're sitting every day in traffic driving to, to work, and you get to work, your suppliers is not delivering. Every day it's the same problem. Every day you have to fight with people with my products for the kitchen. Maybe you send out emails, you don't get back responses. People is not following your instructions. All of that is daily hassles that continue and contributing to chronic stress. Plus, now and then you have this acute stress factors happening. It doesn't have to be severe like a car accident, but it could be maybe if you something happened at work, not on a regular basis, but it's something that's sort of a shock. It causes shock in your body. When we have a stress response, our brain is actually fascinating. And we can also have another complete discussion about the brain and the works and how it's handling stress. But if you think inside your brain, there's a hypothalamus, which is secreting the primary stress hormone, cortisol. And that moves into your body and it starts causing a lot of harm inside your body. But if it's only a once-off event, it will not happen because it's not continuous. It will recover and go back to normal. The problem is when we have acute stress and chronic stress, but we never recover from the stress. As soon as the one is finished, the next one is there. Then there's the morning traffic, then there's the boss, then there's the working conditions. And we end up to have cumulative stress. We don't really recover from this. And eventually this will lead to burnout. And this is where, if I tell you, I can see when my colleagues is reaching a certain stage, there's certain points that you can see that you can observe to see this person is moving to a burnout stage. And this is when somebody needs to intervene or maybe have a discussion or I will just, I will speak to, to just now about it. But this is basic, the, the stress. And also remember, none of us is completely stress-free. Maybe you had a, not a good childhood. Maybe your upbringing was really difficult. Maybe you have other family problems. Maybe you come out of uh, many countries, especially men come out of war zones. And they were fighting early, when they were younger in wars. And that's still, the stress is not dealt with after all these years. And you come already with the stress package to work in a kitchen. And now you have the daily stresses, the acute stresses. Everything is cumulative. And then eventually it leads to burnout. Because as we know, kitchens is not an easy environment for nobody. No, absolutely. Um, not. Yeah, it's a difficult environment. I'm I'm thinking about proactive thinking, right? Like, not 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 necessarily wanted just for my students. I'm, I'm thinking about myself. I'm thinking about you know my family, my children. But why is it essential? Let's just say for students to proactively think about this. Maybe not in the exact detail that you just brought up, but how to prioritize stress, how to 
Oh, I wrote down what, you know, this idea of relieving. If, if you're cognizant of the fact that you're experiencing some chronic stress, how, how important is it for our students to think proactively to get out of that cycle, particularly as it could impact their career trajectory, right? If, if stress is changing their life, impacting their performance, what they're measured on, how how important or or what what hints or clues or or suggestions do you have for students to manage this? I'll be perfectly honest that it probably gets categorized under the topic of mental health, but stress management is really prevalent today for individuals going to school or not going to school. It impacts everything: their their timeliness, their submitting of their work, their enjoyment, their capability to learn because their mind is on something else. Again, loaded question there. I almost forgot what the question was. It's more about, yeah, you know, why is it important for students to proactively think about it and what can they do to proactively think about it and control it? Okay, so I, I thought about this question and uh, once again, I can give you many options on this, but I think there's one thing that's really important if you think about a future career um, I think if there's one thing that we can teach students, maybe even from a school level, not necessarily only at culinary institutes or in universities, um, we need to teach them emotional intelligence. And the reason why emotional intelligence is very important, if you don't have emotional intelligence, which many HR directors see as more important than IQ, you will not be able to communicate properly. You will not be able to motivate your team make sound decisions because everything will be based on emotions. So I think if there's one thing that we should especially make sure they understand is emotional intelligence. There's many other things that we can add to it, but if they want to manage it, if you find that maybe your environment is stressful or maybe even from school level, it's a stressful environment. I think the most important is to know yourself and understand your background. Think about who are you? Because stress can also be influenced by personality. Different personalities handle stress differently. So you need to know what is your personality. We think about the big five personalities, but also like myself is a type A personality. So I'm always busy. I will go on holidays and I will start cleaning the place where I stay. <laughs> because this is my personality. But you need to understand who are you. This is point number one. The second one is we need to concentrate on our health. It's very easy to say. I've just interviewed a few chefs for my final study, and most of them has problems with their health by not eating properly, skipping meals. It's almost like it's not important, but one chef told me that it's almost like you have a motor vehicle. You expect it to go, but you don't put petrol in it. You don't put oil in it. And then you're very surprised when it stops working. And this is how we sometimes treat our body. We need to think what we eat. I understand coming from the background that sometimes there's no time to eat. And I know for myself, it's literally like this. But at least when we eat something, we need to think about the nutrition. What are we putting in our mouth? What are we swallowing down? I'm also doing some brain research studies on what is healthy for your brain, what can reduce stress. And one thing that I recently was doing a study on is like, for example, dark chocolate. Dark chocolate, if you have a little bit of dark chocolate, it, it helps in the formation um, of dopamine, which is a natural stress reducer in your body. It will help you to reduce stress. And there's many other examples. For example, if you have in the morning when you wake up a glass of water before you drink coffee, tea, anything, your brain is hydrated after the night's rest. It needs some liquid, and the only liquid that can reach immediately is water, pure, clean water, and not purified water, just normal, good water. And also, I used to tell students, for example, a simple thing you can do in the kitchen or even at home, take an orange, a citrus fruit, and enjoy eating it. Smell it. Smell the orange. Break it open and listen to the sound. When you put it in your mouth, get a taste, the bitter, the sweet, whatever the result is. 
listen when you eat the crunch. Only that enjoyment of eating that orange will help you to reduce your stress levels. And it's very simple. You can do it any place for a few seconds. Look what you eat and listen. Use all your senses that help you to reduce stress, for example. And also, I think what they can do is for yourself or maybe in culinary schools, we need to improve the cognitive ability of students. And what does it mean? It means that students need to learn how to solve complex problems, how to critical think about stuff, how to be creative about stuff. And what I used to do when I was teaching culinary a long time ago, I used to tell my students when they were looking for ingredients missing, I said, uh, think of something else. You need to learn, teach them how to think, how to solve problems. Uh, not only say, I don't know. They were never allowed to tell my class, I don't know. They need to come up with a solution and, because we need to teach them to use the cognitive ability. And then obviously small things like time management, which is very important. And I think if you're working in the kitchen, they're going to work in the kitchen. They're going to be managers. Obviously, management and leadership skills, we should really teach them that because I think for a long time it was not brought in culinary schools. But also the sense of belonging. There's many people around the world, chefs, they're very far away from their homes, from their countries. They work all around the world. They're very lonely. Their only family is the kitchen family. And it's very important that the organization try to include, you know, give the sense of belonging to them. And there's many other ways that we can do it through meditation, through uh, different ways. But I think a few simple things like this, it can really help you. You need to care for yourself. Don't be your worst enemy. Think what you're doing. If you didn't have a break for eight hours, you just keep working. Maybe just take a quick walk. Take a few minutes break. Power naps, I believe in power naps. If I have to work at night, I sleep on the couch for 10 minutes and I feel like new when I wake up. You need to care for yourself. It's really important. Did you take a nap before we talked? Yes, I did. You did? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so there there is so much there. That was, let me, I want to summarize a little bit. I was going to ask about some signs, right, that we've, that 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 indicate that we've entered that zone, but I think you you sort of answer that. I'm gonna I'm gonna run into gonna go into a culture um, question here in a minute, but I I want to make sure that I got the, the these five. I think you had five points that are really poignant. Know who you are. Health. I I love the you know not only eating well but enjoying the way you eat. I love that. Critical thinking is critical, pun intended. <laughs> it is, and I'll use a pragmatic example, right? For our online students, when they prepare a dish or a technique that we've asked them to, and they upload photos, the photos are certainly incredibly informative, and they help our instructors gauge whether or not students are comprehending you know, the technique. But what gives us the most comfort and insight into whether or not learning is taking place is their cognitive narrative. If, if they can talk about what they're doing, it demonstrates critical thinking and we have the ability to, to assess them in a very positive way. So I love that. Time management, we could all do better with that. The fifth bullet was really interesting to me, this you know, leadership slash uh, skills slash a sense of belonging. That's another podcast in itself right there. I think you said something about being away from home and then the the kitchen becomes your home, particularly for ground students who may travel from, you know, the East Coast or from abroad to come to school with us here at Escoffier. That's a very, I might even move that to the top, right? That's really, Wanda, that is really important. So with that as a backdrop, in the work that you've done, you've also talked about how leaders and managers today can play, how you and I can play a significant role in creating a culture. We can talk all we want, but how do we create a culture that prioritizes mental health? And I'd love for you to speak a little bit about you, you know, what soft skills can we prioritize? What are some simple steps that, that managers, instructors can take to 
to cultivate, you know, and prioritize mental health. And then the, the toughest part is, this is a question that I, I didn't tell you I was going to ask, but I'm fascinated by the conversations around generations, you know, traditionalists, baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, alpha, Gen Z, so on and so forth. Everything that you share with us, do you believe that it changes from generation to generation? The way that we're able to cope with stress, the way that we will listen to advice on how to prioritize stress. I have my own thoughts <laughs> on that with, with children that drop into almost all of those buckets. But uh, again, massive question there. I think more than anything, if we can talk about how to develop that culture that prioritizes mental health and then maybe how it differs from you know, generation to generation. Thank you for the two questions. I will explain to you just now the difference of what I've experienced, particularly in this country, and you know how it's fitting in your question. What I want to explain to you is that if you talk about culture in a kitchen and creating it, I've mentioned to you before emotion and intelligence. What I even do in trainings for restaurant staff, for kitchen staff, when we talk about them, try to improve the culture, the, the stress management, the mental health, I think the following example is the simplest for everybody to understand. So if you think about a beggar, a person walking in the street, looking for food, he will go to a dustbin, he will open the dustbin, he will find maybe a box of food, maybe somebody throw away. And he will look at the box, he will pick the food that's still edible, what he thinks are still nutritional value, and the ones that is not any longer valuable or not possible to eat, he will throw away. It's the same with emotional intelligence. We cannot help that people maybe had a very bad conversation with us, don't speak in the proper way, is insensitive, no empathy. Maybe they didn't have the training. Maybe their background is very difficult. But we can choose how to react to people like this. The same with the bigot. You pick out the words what this person is saying that might help you to improve or might be beneficial for you. And while you're taking the rest, throw it away. Take it from words coming. You're only used to words if maybe the person mentioned you never listened. And maybe that was valuable because maybe you need to improve your listening skills. But why are you listening to anything else which is not really related to you, but rather based on this person's background or whatever the reason was why they acted like this. And this is the same in kitchens. We should teach staff because in kitchens, in the hospitality industry, emotions can run very high for different reasons. Maybe lack of training. They may be trained as managers, but never learn to be leadership. Maybe they've never had any training related to that, especially if you look at all the culinary schools. I now know that it's in a little bit more. But many schools are only teaching skills, but they never teach chefs how to be a leader, how to motivate your team. And I think also a very important aspect is cultural difference. We might look the same. If I cut you open, we will look exactly the same. But we come from different backgrounds. And to answer your question about generations, I want to slightly shift it rather to the background, not about age only, but also about the culture. And um, where I'm currently staying has a Soviet background. They come with this mindset and the background where many of them was taught when they were younger not to think. They, they taught in schools, you cannot think, you should not think. You should copy and paste. You should study this and write this in the exam. So if you ask me about the differences, not only in the generations, definitely you find the old school. If you think about the Scoffier and all the, the early uh, guide chefs, they had a very military style. And today, some chefs are more, they're more liberate, they're more open, they have more experience in management. But you should never forget the background of the person because if they come from this environment, their mindset is very rigid. They follow this, doesn't matter the age, because their parents are following it. I was asking last year in the university, if we go digital, if I put everything online, will it be fine with you? 
the students told me, yes, but we still want the paper printout because our fathers believe that you should have background. We don't trust the computer. So you Isn't understand that the, the, minds, yeah, the mindset. And it's, yes, definitely the age, the different uh, groups, is, they're improving slightly, but maybe they're dropping something else. Maybe the skill set. I think the difference will be the older chefs is more particular about skill set. And the younger chefs is more related to technology. Yes. So yes. technology starts to, to take a role, which we're going to discuss a little bit later. But I think maybe a skill set is not any longer the most important. That might be that the younger chef starts to a little bit water down on this. But definitely we need to think about culture. Also culture, as you know, many kitchens around the world has many cultures inside. And you will think, no, not all, all countries, but I've seen all over the world when I was traveling, you can easily find five, six, seven, eight, nine different nationalities in one kitchen. If you as a manager are not trained as a head of a kitchen or a executive chef, you've never been trained to handle cultural differences, how are you going to motivate your team? You don't understand collective culture. You don't understand individualistic culture. You're going to struggle. Some is going to listen to you and some is not going to listen to you. So I really believe that culture with emotional intelligence is one of the most important understandings that we need to have to be able to lead the team successfully. And to deal also then, if you have this, you'll be able to manage the mental health because all of this is related. If you think about it, it's coming back to mental health, creating more stress, and maybe then followed by anxiety and depression. So so interesting as you were speaking, I was again thinking of a pragmatic example. My my parents, immigrants, same way, math was so important to them. And it was all about memorization. And as children, my sister and I didn't ask questions. We just memorized what they asked us to memorize to this day. And and I and with my four children, it's been different. It's interesting. You know, when I challenge them on nine times nine and eight times eight and seven times eight, they they pose questions back. Why do you care yes. what eight, eight times eight is? Yes. And it's a difficult response, right? I want them in a weird sort of way to sort of memorize the way I memorized, right? And have never forgotten. They need more clarity. Young people today yes. need to understand what the significance of their answer is. I always use the example, Wanda, of, and it, it's kind of a cliche, that when you look at a, a group of middle school students in a classroom and the teacher asks a question, oftentimes all the hands go up, especially the boys. They may or may not the, know the answers. They, they probably don't know the answer, but they self-esteem does not come into play. They don't, they, they just fair. want to be noticed, right? But for adult learners, like like we have here in in college, right? Boy, self-esteem really comes into play, doesn't it? They may know the answer, they may think they know the answer, but they're they don't have the confidence to give the answer. Does that cause stress, right? I'm you, you know, metaphorically, does that cause stress as well? Really interesting. I w- I kind of want to roll that into y- what you're studying, right? We alluded at the top of the show that you're studying creating lean cultures in the back back of the house operations. Can we start right there and define what a lean culture is or is supposed to be? Thank you for the question. And so because of my total quality management background, I started to be interested in a lean six sigma, which is basically in a very short version explained creating lean, going lean at and shaving off everything that can cause additional cost, um, wasting time, uh, extra motion, anything that you can improve by making it lean and narrower, less time. And I started to be fascinated because um, Lean Six Sigma was originally implemented in manufacturing. If you think many, many years ago back, the Toyota car, Ford actually, they started in their factory to produce black motor vehicles, only black. They were streamlining the colors to only one color. <laughs> and so obviously there was many people in between, uh, Deming, many other people, but 
then I was interested in the, by the time I started with my PhD, not so many people used Lean Six Sigma in kitchens. I now start with group and Marriott Hotel group. They were following the Lean Six Sigma principles, but many people saying that it was more for manufacturing. However, if you think about it, Lean Six Sigma in kitchens is very relevant. In kitchens, we use food to produce, and in manufacturing, we use metal, correct? It's only the ingredient that is different that we use. So the principles of Lean Six Sigma can be applied in kitchens, meaning less wastage. One that's really outstanding for me is maybe the skills that we sometimes miss of people. Because we don't take care to find out what staff can really do, we don't pay attention to the CVs, Sometimes we hire a person from outside to maybe demonstrate sugar artwork, for example, but we have a person inside that's already qualified to do it that maybe is very good in it. So even that wastage of talent, skills that we're not aware of, it's also part of Six Sigma or Lean Six Sigma. But mostly it's based on product wastage, motion wastage to have a storeroom on that side, but we only working on this side and going as... Uh, lean as possible. So I will tell you a story um, about many years ago. I was working in a food production company and we were supplying food outlets with daily sandwiches, salads, uh, products like this. And I was also the continuous quality manager at that time. And I noticed one day when I was standing in the vegetable fruit area where they received it, that we received vacuum packed lettuce packages, mixed lettuce, that they open, they break the seal, and they put it in a GN container, and then the next day they will use it. But the price of this packet, because it was specially packed vacuum seal, was much higher than if you just buy the lettuce and you rinse it, because we did have a rinsing station. And to cut the short story, long story short, the, the end result was in about three months, a saving of $30,000 by only changing buying the, the product not the vacuum pack product make to mix ourselves and serve it as part of the salad instead of using the vacuum pack packet letters which doesn't have any purpose because they open it as soon as it arrives on the premises so this is what lean is about to look at opportunities not only in cost saving but less wastage. Maybe we have a very long process for something. We can cut out a few steps. It saves time. It's less tired for maybe the person creating it. It can be a cost saving. We need to think all the time how we can go leaner, less time. And this is what's happening in the kitchen. But this is an example I thought would give you a very good idea how we can think about going leaner. No, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm curious. One question on that one, before we go into Industry 4.0, do you find in your experience with Lean Six Sigma that it's an individual approach to this sort of philosophy or a team approach or both? I would say, the, okay, firstly, it's a team approach, but you must have management support. Okay. If you only have the lower level, management must buy the idea, understand the process of going lean, implementing lean principles, and then you can follow it through as a team effort. And um, I always tell people if we implement it that you will be surprised what you find from cleaners. They normally have the most information. Yes, yes <laughs> That is yes, the people yes. that you should get involved in programs like this. They will tell you exactly where the waste stitchings and where it's taking a long time to do anything. They know everything. I love it. I love it. I read that part of your research study includes how robotics will affect the mental health of chefs in food production facilities. And this is overall part of this concept of Industry 4.0. So this is possibly a whole nother podcast again, but at a high level, could you talk a little bit about Industry 4.0 and are we in that now? Are we in Industry 4.0 today? My opinion is yes. And no, and I will tell you why. Because Industry 4.0 is for a number of years already with the industry, different industries, where we are implementing Internet of Things, AI, robotics, latest technology to improve manufacturing. 
And most people have the fear of it will take my job. I will lose my job. Everything will be automated and it will change. However, if you look at Japan, they already moved to industry 5.0, where instead of we think that robotics will take our jobs, we rather see technology automation as helping us. It, it becomes our help as our assistant. And we work together as a team to create the product. So this is the shift. Some countries are still in 4.0, but definitely it's changing. The more people is experiencing robotics and the food industry was up to recently not so familiar with robotics, but it's rapidly changing. And if you look at the figures of robotics, that you can see that there will be a, a very high increase, especially after COVID. Because as you know, there was a lot of staff shortage, many students, many people left the industry and robotics went up, not because they're losing their jobs, but people start to realize we can implement it and use it in an effective way. What I really believe is that it will take the job away. If you think about a chef, maybe working in an environment where there's a lot of fried chicken, a lot of dangerous work, the whole time deep frying of chicken. It will remove that dangerous job and it will give the shift the opportunity to rather create because creativity, we can program robots on human profiles. We can teach them how to think based on our profiles, but they will never have that human element, which we can ex can't explain to someone. We program a robot, but you know, you, you can find sometimes a taste, you can create something that you cannot explain. And we rather use the talent to be more creative, to produce things like that. And we remove the repetitive, dangerous jobs. And this is the way how I think it's going to move forward. What I'm interested in this study is to see, as we say that shifts is already stressed based on many things, uh, working conditions, um, sometimes poor salary, bad management, but is robotics going to improve the mental health, making it less stressful for shifts? than just a normal kitchen without any robotics. And this is currently what I'm investigating and collecting data. Wando, since we're on the on the topic of robotics, I'd be remiss if I didn't segue into AI and ChatGPT. I'm I'm not questioning whether we should use it or not. I'm interested in your perspective on how to leverage it and to the best of our ability. I think like what you rightly say in the beginning that we should utilize everything, correct? Um, we should not avoid it because it's a new development. If you think about when we got a mobile phones, when the computer was implemented, everybody said it would not work and look where we are today. So my view on ChatGPT or maybe any AI facility creating work is the following. I've done several tests, a little bit pilot studies on different scenarios. And I really believe that we need to teach the student how to use it in the correct way. What is the meaning of this? It means that students will use it because like me, they're also curious. They learn from their friends, they see it on social media and definitely they will use it. But if we teach them to use it the right way as a guide, okay, and then add your creativity, your perspective to it, we can use it in a positive way. So instead of telling them you cannot use it, we need to teach them in the right way. I've done recently a study on Christmas menus and I was explaining to the students at our school and I said, so if you're going to create a Christmas dinner or a lunch menu for different nationalities, you need to sit down and think about the nationality, what is important, or you can use ChatGPT what is the, the, the lunch menu for South Africans? What is the lunch menu for Canadians? What is the lunch menu for German people? You'll get an idea what is popular for Christmas. And then the creativity will come in by your creation of the recipe, correct? You need to come up with the taste, the flavor, the recipe to make it special. But it will save time instead of doing research. What do South Africans eat? What does Germans have for lunch for Christmas? It will tell you that, but you need to build in the creativity and do the research on the, the flavors, how you're going to build your personality in it. But I think for a time saving tool, it's very helpful in that sense. 
Also, what I've done a study is uh, because many universities um, sometimes complain that students use it, it's very simple to find out how they use it. If you ask ChatGPT that you create a document, it will tell you, yes, I've created the document or no, I didn't create a document. But I really believe we should utilize it, but teach the students to use it as a calculator, uh, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. in a positive way. But they should also know how to do it by themselves. I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you know, we, we've been chatting for, for so long and I, I just realized, um, you know, time just flies when you're having fun and it's getting late into the evening. But I, if, if, if you could indulge me, I, I, I have one really important final question. But before I get there, I was hoping you could share just from your perspective, your experience, your life experiences, any words of wisdom on how to better or continue to better prepare culinary students, those interested in our craft, to enter this craft in this ever-changing world that we're in, which includes stress management and technology at the highest level and financial challenges and so on and so forth. Any words of wisdom of, of how a student can best prepare themselves for this industry? Well, in a recent study I was doing for this government, I was telling them that we teach the students the skills with a little bit background about management and maybe how to apply for job applications, a little bit background on that, but we're not really preparing them for entrepreneurship. We're teaching them a skill. Many of them is going to open maybe their own restaurant or they're trying to attempt to open their own restaurant, but we never taught them how to read the basic financial statement, how to hire the correct candidate for the position. What is the legalization in your country referring to the opening a business? What documents is required? And how do you make a loan at a bank if you don't have the money? That is skills, I think, for the very entry level that I think sometimes is lacking. They get, they're, they're very good in the skill craft, but they open a business and then they fail because they don't have the background of this important business management skills. And the second thing is preparing them for technology. Definitely, we should stay with the classic skills because this is why we're chefs, correct? This is why they come to culinary school. But like I've mentioned before, once they know the skills to do it by hand, there is technology that can help you to save time, to manage your time better, that can help you in kitchens. But if you don't understand the classic method, it's more difficult to identify problems with technology, correct? Mm -hmm. if, if you have a rice cooker, for example, doing a few thousand kg at one time, if you don't understand the basic, the identification of problems become, you understand AI. So I think, I guess what I'm saying is that the teaching of classic skills is very important, but at the same time, we need to expose students to the latest technology. If they're going to travel, if they're going to work in different countries in the world, every country is different. If I think, for instance, the UAE, the technology is completely different in this country. So what if I send my student out and he's going to work in that country? And he doesn't understand technology. He's never seen any AI technology in kitchens. He doesn't understand it. So even if it's not always possible to physically let him use in, in your environment, but you must make them aware of what is happening in the world, which is changing every day. And as we speak, technology is changing. A absolutely it is. That, yeah, we need to stay ahead of what's happening and inform students. Also, I believe in sometimes simulations where they can experience a new environment, even business simulation, entrepreneurial simulation, or maybe an environment in a kitchen environment that's completely different so that they can experience a little bit of the real environment in this world. I think this is important to prepare them for the future. Really well said. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. So Wanda, the name of our podcast, of our chat, is The Ultimate Dish. Oftentimes the toughest question that we ask. And that is, what is the ultimate dish in your mind? Could be pastry if it needs to be. <laughs> Could be pastry if it needs to be. Um, I think the, um, the ultimate dish, this is a difficult question. Right? <laughs> <laughs> for my PhD um, candidate. For my PhD <laughs> candidate. 
Ama ben de bir gün fırça. I I really think for myself, if I don't think food related, um, I do uh, do like a lot of seafood, but I think something chocolate related maybe. Because uh, to explain to you, my answer is when I eat. Unfortunately, I always keep in mind is it healthy for my brain? Will it benefit my brain? Will it contribute to brain function? <laughs> Especially if you do PhD. <laughs> So it's really a difficult question because I eat according to my brain at this stage. That's a good answer, though. It, it, <laughs> that's your answer, right? So for you, the ultimate dish, the food you put in your body has to have some sort of reaction. And for you, it's 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 thinking. It, so perhaps it is chocolate or a glass of port before you go to bed at night, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Wanda, thank you so much. We've taken way too much of your time. We so appreciate your knowledge, and and I'm sure that there's a part two out there somewhere because there's so much left to talk about. Congratulations on on all of these success, and I hope you have a, a beautiful holiday season. Okay, thank you, and the same to you as well as Noel. I hope you have a wonderful season, and hopefully see you again next year, Sapa. Absolutely. Thank you again. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ultimate Dish Podcast brought to you by Augusta Escoffier School of Culinary Arts. Visit escoffier.edu forward slash podcast to find any materials mentioned during the podcast, including notes, links, and other resources. And if you can, please leave us a rating on Apple or Spotify and subscribe to support our show. This helps us reach more aspiring individuals ready to take the next step toward their dream careers. Thanks for listening. 